Today, um, we're continuing with our Advent series, and uh, there's two more messages to come, but this one is on alignment, where, where, where heaven meets earth, and we're talking about alignment today. So uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We s- jumped from Luke to Matthew, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, and uh, I'll, I'll open us in prayer, but after we read the scripture. So why don't you stand with me as we read the scripture. <clears throat> after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. You can have a seat. Let's pray. God, this is it's Christmas. You know, it's Sunday and it is Christmas season and <laughs> we are here to worship you and this is just a huge privilege. So no matter what's going on in the world around us, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what else is happening right now, we're in this place, in this space, right here in this room together, gathered around you, gathered around your word, excited about the fact that your, your truth is that where two or three are gathered, you're here with us, you're here with us, you're speaking to us, we're worshiping you. This is a privilege, is what this is. And God, we want to engage that privilege today. We want to engage with you today. We want to hear from you today. And we ask, God, that you would speak your words to our hearts, that uh, our stuff, we don't want it to be in the way. I don't want my stuff to be in the way. I don't want, uh, you know, the mind of Tim to be in the way of what it is that you want to do here. Um, You know, and each of us has our own concerns, our own sins, all of our stuff. But, God, we just ask that all that being set aside right now, God, that we would meet with you and it would be a special thing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yeah, we're going to talk about alignment today. And uh, alignment's kind of a term that is uh, important to me right now because I had an accident a couple months ago in my car, and they replaced the suspension on the one side because of the accident, but not on the other side. And so there's actually like a new suspension on one side and old on the other side. And so um, when I go like super fast in my car, just kidding, um, when, I go, when I get on the highway and I, I do normal highway speeds, um, the car starts to like do a little rattle, you know, like shakes a little bit and it wants to pull left and everything. So they have to take it back to the shop to get it aligned. And, but the fact that there's these two different suspensions and the one's breaking in, it's hard for the alignment to stay in place. Even after they get it aligned, it's kind of breaking in and then the alignment, they're having a struggle. So it's been an ongoing thing to keep my car aligned right now, but that's not your problem, that's mine. And that actually has nothing to do with what we're talking about today other than the word alignment. And, um, it has a little bit to do with it in some ways, maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll see how the spirit moves in the message and if it comes back around. Um, but there are actually two different attitudes in our text today. In the same way, there's two different suspensions in my car. There's two different attitudes. That's the best I can do, bringing it together. There's two different attitudes in the text today that are personified by the people, in, the characters in the story. And the one attitude is the attitude of the worshiper, a true worshiper who is seeking God, just seeking God. Their life is about finding God and submitting to God. 
You're saying, life, I want to know where God is, and I want to do whatever it takes to find him, and I want to submit my life to God because I was designed to function under the authority of God. And so my life won't work and make sense until I find him and submit to him. So my life's pursuit, all my efforts are about finding him and submitting to him. That's the one attitude personified. Then there's the other attitude. And the other attitude is the person who they are kind of God of their own life. They are the ones who their, their life is shaped around. They have an intention, but the intention isn't to find God. It's to go after this thing, whatever it is that they want in their life. And to the extent that God helps facilitate that vision, their own vision for their life, then God's great. As soon as God impinges, infringes on that, uh, you know, whatever their desire is, now all of a sudden it's like God's not welcome you know? And, and so God's fine, and I can deal with God to the extent that it fits in with my game plan for my life. But as soon as it gets outside of that game plan, I don't have time for God, you know? And, and, and I need to protect myself from God and whoever else wants to, to, to step in on that space. And there are the two attitudes. One is the attitude of submission and worship. The other is insubmission and rebellion, okay? One is independence. One is dependence on God. And that's the two attitudes that are personified in the text. Now, if I were to ask you today, which one of these attitudes do you personify? Which one speaks to you? Well, some of you might say, I know. I know, like, I gave up on my own life a long time ago. Man, I only have one thing in life. And that's I got to find out where God is and I got to submit my life to him every step of the way. And that's all I care about, you know? And some of you might say, actually, you know what? I haven't seen much in God right now that makes me trust him. And so I pretty much, yeah, I'm doing my own thing. And I'm here like I'm kind of open on one level maybe or whatever. Or maybe I'm just doing the religious thing to, you know, play ball or whatever. But, but I'm really, yeah, it's about my life and my direction right now. Or maybe there's this other option where there's some of us who are saying, you know, I think kind of both those attitudes rest within me and they war against each other. You know, where it's like I'm selfish and I want life my way and then I'm also like trying to be submissive and there's this tension and I don't know exactly which one I personify. It kind of depends on which day you ask me or which moment you ask me. And uh, here's the issue though with that. I get that and that's true of many of us probably where we feel that tension but there's this other thing we have to reconcile and it's the teachings of Jesus. You see, Jesus says that there's actually two paths. That's it. And we are on one of them and we're not on the other, regardless of what it looks like to us or to anyone else watching. You see, if you flip the, we're in Matthew chapter 2, and if you like flip the page, you get to Matthew chapter 5, which is the beginning of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' like phenomenal message. And then flip the page again, you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, in, in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, after Jesus has preached all this stuff about how we're to live life and everything, he gets to, chapter, to verse 13 of chapter 7, and this is what he says. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I want you to think about this for a second. There's two gates, and there's a trail behind each of the gates that go in completely different directions. If I enter the gate and the gate shuts behind me, I'm on this trail. Can I be on this trail and that other trail at the same time? Can I enter through both gates at the same time? No. What Jesus is saying is there's only two different ways. There's the kingdom of light and there's the kingdom of darkness. There's those who believe, repent, trust, and follow, and there's those who don't. And while it may look to us confusing about where our lives are or where someone else's life is, there is no confusion in the mind of God. We are on one of these two paths. We've entered one of those gates, and that's all there is to it. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's an interesting thought because even when we look at ourselves, sometimes there's confusion. And yet for God, there is no confusion, none at all. And what's amazing in this story is that there's both of these attitudes. And I would venture to guess that prior to this story, prior to this event, if we looked at all the characters who are in this text, we would not be able to know from, their, from just looking at them, from all the outward appearance and from our interaction, which one is on the God path and which one isn't. I don't think we'd know that until this story. But in this story, something changes and we find out. And you know what it is that changes? Heaven meets earth because Jesus 
A little baby is born in Bethlehem, and all of a sudden, the hearts of men and women are revealed. You see, what happens is, is we may be in this place of tension and confusion and we might not know exactly where we are, but God knows precisely where we are because the difference is, is that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And our heart is either in submission to God or it's not. It, and it's, it, what happens is, is when God shows up, we don't have a choice but to react. You know why? Because we were created in our very core, in our spirit, we were created to be worshipers of God. We were created to be those who respond to God by worshiping him, submitting to him, and following him. And because of that, because we're wired that way, when God comes into the room, we have to react. You see, someone can come and say something to me, any, anything, and it might mean one thing. But then if my parents or my boss or someone who's in authority over me says something, says that same thing, it means something different because of the position they, have, they hold. You know what I mean? You know how if, like, if somebody off the street, you know, just kind of says something to me, it might mean one thing, but if my parents say it, it would mean something radically different, you know? And this is the way it goes, that when God steps into the room, we are his created beings, and we have no choice but to react. And we can react one of two ways. We can react in the sense that we are like, Yes, there he is, and I want to find him and submit to him and figure out how to honor him and please him, and I want to do anything I can to help facilitate, or I can react in the way where I want to hide and protect myself, and I'm not sure if he's okay with what I'm doing right now, and I have my life, and I want to go this way, and he's impinging on what I want, you know? And so there's fear and control and hiding and all of that, and we can react in one of two ways, and in this story, all that has to happen is a baby has to be born. And as soon as a baby's born, all of a sudden, all the confusion, it's like a fog that begins to lift and you begin to see things clearly and you begin to see where people's hearts are through the story. And there's these two groups of people and it's amazing. I mean, the first group of people are the magi and you know what magi are, right? They're astrologers. They're basically like half scientist and half sorcerer. You know, that's kind of what they are. They're like, they're a weird thing that we don't, we probably do have plenty in our world today, but they're not, it's not like, this isn't like a, a normal profession. You know, you don't ask people these days, hey, what do you do? I'm an astrologer. I'm a magi. I'm like half sorcerer, half scientist. You're psycho. You know, like that's, what, you know, and we don't do that, you know, in our world. That's not how it works, at least in the Western world. And yet in that day, that was a, it was a much more common profession. You know, this was kind of an accepted form of gaining information and wisdom and knowledge is learning from the stars and these were kind of the scholars of the day and but it was not all just like science it wasn't just studying uh you know how the earth worked there was also in this profession was like the deep mystical knowledge and all of that and it was kind of a combination of all of that they lived in a very spiritual society so science and spiritual stuff were kind of interrelated as frankly in some ways it should be on some levels right i mean we, sometimes our humanistic science where it's just like it's just the facts it misses the fact that there's spiritual stuff going on but anyway that's what these guys are they were astrologers and how do they find out that jesus is born they, they see a star this is crazy honestly straight up crazy somebody comes to you and says yeah i just i just found out who the next ruler of the world is going to be you know the next big king in the world well who's that well it's some kid who was born in indonesia really that's weird. How do you know they're going to be some ruler? Well, I saw their star in this guy. Okay, next conversation. You know, like moving on now. That hey, I don't care if you have like, you know, all, all your degrees from Harvard or whatever, Ivy League school. If you're telling me you saw a star in this guy and so you know this person's going to be the next ruler of the world, like you're really suspect at this point, you know? And yet these guys, it's not like that for them because they live in a different world than we do. And let me give you some of the factors that line up to make this a credible story to the people of their day. First of all, like I said, astrology, that was, that's one of the major ways of gaining deep insight. Secondly, about 35, 40 years, somewhere between 35 and 45 years before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar dies, okay? The great emperor of Rome, this huge emperor of Rome. And listen to this, at his funeral, okay? At his funeral, they're, they're all standing around Julius Caesar's funeral. And you know what happens in the sky above them? There's a supernova. 
All of a sudden, like, you know, that's when like a star explodes and, and, and like there's a big explosion on a star and the star just gets really bright. This happens at his funeral, above his funeral. This isn't like, you know, myth, Greek mythology. This isn't like, this is legit. This is documented fact that this nova happens above his funeral. And all of a sudden there's this huge bright star in the sky. And you know what every person there thought, right? I mean, this is in, this is in the realm of like Greek, the Greek worship and all of that. They're like, well... Julius Caesar just joined the pantheon of the gods, you know? And there's his star going and joining the celestial beings. And everyone at that point was like, that's it. We understand it now. Kings have stars, you know? And especially when they're divine kinds of kings. And this is like 35 years, 40 years before Jesus is born that this happens. Astrology, big deal. Tying kings to stars, Big deal. You know, what else is there's this rumor, and I didn't know about this until I was studying for this message. There was this big rumor that was all around the known world around Jesus' time that there was going to be a Judean king that was going to rise up and rule the earth. And this wasn't just like a, a rumor among the Jews. This was a rumor all over the known world. And as a matter of fact, it was such a big rumor that it empowered all sorts of insurrections from Judah, which is eventually why the temple gets destroyed by Rome, is because these people keep coming up with these insurrections and Rome's like, it's because of this rumor that's going around about this king that's going to come up. We've got to annihilate this place. So after Jesus uh, resurrects and ascends into heaven. It's not long after that until Rome comes in and demolishes Jerusalem. And it's all because of this rumor that's going around. So there's a rumor about a Judean king. They believe that stars are tied to kings. And these guys are the stargazers. They're the star experts. And then there's even this prophecy that's in Numbers. And this prophecy in Numbers says, a star will rise out of Jacob and a scepter will come out of Israel. And that's like straight, that's Right here in Numbers, you know, it's actually, I have Numbers twenty four seventeen. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. That's from the Bible, you know. So all that stuff, and you put it together, and you say, okay, it might be weird if someone told me that there was like a leader who came because there was a star in the sky. At the same time, if you put yourself in that context, what's actually more surprising is that more people aren't seeing this. You know, if everyone's thinking stars are connected to kings, there's a new star, there's a prophecy about that. Everyone thinks there's a Judean king coming up. They just saw the Julius Caesar thing happen back then. Like everyone should be on this. But maybe these, these astrologers are the only ones who actually see the star. There's actually a theory about what it is they saw. This is kind of the leading theory, is that th- there, was, there was an astronomical event that took place. And uh, anybody, you heard of conjunction in astronomy? It's when there's a, a, an orbital path of a planet and orbital path of another planet, and when they intersect from our vantage point, eventually it becomes an eclipse, but at first it's like the two lights come together and it forms something brighter. And it's a really rare occurrence, an extremely rare occurrence. There's actually supposed to be one happening, I think they said in 2025 or something like that. So in our lifetime, um, hopefully, God God bless us and we live to 2025. uh, But it's a really rare occurrence that happens. But this in 7 BC, which may be the date of Jesus' birth, you know, Jesus' birth is not actually in between, right in between AD and BC, because some monk miscalculated it years later and got the date wrong. And so we know that Jesus was born before the transition from uh, BC to AD. We don't know exactly what the date is, but it's somewhere back there. And on 7 BC, the great conjunction happened three times in one year. Documented fact. Happened three times in one year. That's pretty impressive. So what they think might have happened is, is that these guys, they see the uh, Jupiter and, and Saturn come together and they see this new star and they see it from the east and they're like, whoa, let's go. And they go and they go to Jerusalem and there's all sorts of reasons why they would think it was Judah, but we won't get into that. And they show up, but by that time, this thing is not in conjunction anymore. And so they show up at the palace and they say, where's the king? And they get led to Bethlehem. And it says in the text that when they move toward Bethlehem, the star reappears and guides them to Bethlehem. It's like it happens again, you know, and the whole thing could explain it. Now, if sometimes when you explain, when there's natural explanation for some things like that, people get frustrated because they're like, what are you trying to take away from the power of God? Like God could have just thrown a star in the sky, you know? Well, he absolutely could. I just think that God's even better than throwing a star in the sky. See, it's like this. I had this babysitter who I used to love going to her place because she'd make chocolate chip cookies when we came over, which was awesome. And she was really good at making chocolate chip cookies. And when we were in the kitchen with her, she never set a timer because she would just like look in the, she knew, you know, she had it down, you know, she knew how to do chocolate chip cookies. She could tell they were just golden or whatever. But when we weren't in the room, she would set a timer. When, when, 
when I wasn't in the room, she would set a timer. And she, it wasn't one of those like digital timers or a timer on your oven. It was one of those wind-up things. Remember those things? Uh, some of you still have those? Yeah, and the, the wind-up timer. And she'd go and she'd put it right next to me wherever I was playing. Which I was awesome. Because I'm like, she knows. She doesn't need the timer. she got to figure it out. But she has a real good idea about how long this is going to take. And she knows by the time that thing buzzes, I'm going to be blitzing into the kitchen. And she's going to have cookies laid out for me and a glass of milk or something. You know? And uh, th- that timer right there. See, God said that on the fourth day of creation, he put the stars in the sky to mark the seasons and the days and the time. And I think that whatever this astronomical event that happened on the day of Jesus, this is like God just winding up the stars and putting it out there and saying, wait do you see what happens in however many thousands of years from now, you know? He knew all the way back then. And to think that that is less supernatural than God deciding to just throw some star in the sky when he decides to bring his son. No, God's like way better than that. You know, it's not haphazard with God. Everything is planned out. He's incredible and he's phenomenal. And, and so he knew before the foundations of the earth what astronomical event would happen. He put it in motion at just the moment when he knew the cookies would be ready and the bun would be in the oven as it were. <laughs> you know, um, Did you get that? Come on. (laughs) All right. So anyway, Jesus is born, star in the sky, and these guys see this event, you know, and it's amazing. And you got to ask yourself at this point, is this okay? Because, like, I thought astrology was, like, sorcery, you know? And as a matter of fact, when you look at the scriptures about what God says about astrology, it's not okay. I mean, in Isaiah, he says the astrologers are going to burn up in the fire. Hello. You know, in Deuteronomy, he, in, in Daniel, when he talks about, uh, you know, Daniel has to interpret the dreams of, of all these different kings, the astrologers and the sorcerers and all these other people are the opposition. You know, and then when you get to, in Deuteronomy, God strictly forbids this kind of activity. You get to Acts and you see Simon the sorcerer. And in verse 13, you see this other guy who I can't even really pronounce his name very well, who's a sorcerer. And these guys are like, they're, they're, they're obviously bad guys, you know? They're bad guys who are using, they're doing kind of like deep magic and have this weird way of gaining information. And it's not okay with God. It really isn't. It's not okay with him at all. And you know why it's not okay? Because it's trying to gain information that they should be getting from God. Wisdom is found in God and they're trying to find it apart from God. You remember what Solomon, the wisest king to ever live, said about wisdom? He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And so how do you find wisdom? How do you get in the right space? The way is by knowing that God is big and in charge and I'm small and I'm not. And the more I get my life submitted to him, the more I will find wisdom and direction for my life. But if I'm over here and just want to do what I want to do, but I want to gain some information without submitting to God, you know what that's called? Witchcraft. The use of spiritual power without submission to God. That's what witchcraft is trying to gain information apart from gaining it from the wisdom giver. That's why in James, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives it generously to those who ask. But when you ask, you have to ask with faith. And you know what faith is? Faith is trusting. That's what it is. So I got to trust God, which means this, that if God's going to give me the information I need, I'm making a commitment in asking for that, that if he gives me the information in the direction, I'll submit to it and I'll follow. And he says, if you ask for it with submission, with trust, with faith, then you're saying to God, tell me what to do, and if you tell me, I'll do it. That's different than saying, hey, I'm looking for signs, and I'm looking for information so that I can take my own life and do what I want with it. Radically different, you know? And so if we look for wisdom but don't have the fear and respect and submission to God, then we're building our whole house on sand instead of on rock because we don't have the foundation of fear of God. And no matter how good I am at running my business or taking care of my family or doing whatever, it's all on sand because I don't have the fear of God. I'm not submitting to God. And eventually, all that facade of wisdom is going to come crumbling down. But these guys, they actually hear from God through this weird form of astrology, which is strictly forbidden by God. So what gives? Like, why in the world would God communicate through something called astrology when he forbids that in other circumstances? And this is why. Listen, because what's going on in this moment 
is the fact that these guys don't know this word, okay? And yet their hearts obviously yearn for God. And so God, he could, you know, all of a sudden have a Bible show up on their, on their you know, counter at home or something. But that's just weird. And God doesn't act that way. That's not how he usually does things. How he does things is he invades our space and he finds us where we are and he reaches down and he touches us there. You know, there's all sorts of ways. You can hear testimonies over and over again about people who were living in ways they shouldn't live and they don't have contact with the right religion. They're in a false religion. They don't have contact with the right kind of person. They don't know believers who know the information. But God finds a way to reach into their life and in the middle of some bad drug trip or in the middle of some false religion somehow or in the middle of some dream, God shows up to them and he reveals himself to them and bam, you watch their life begin to change and eventually they're led to a place where they're taught the scriptures and they learn the truth about God and God would prefer to speak through the scriptures and he forbids all these other ways but just because he forbids all those other ways doesn't mean that he can't reach in and talk to people in the middle of them because he's not only the God of the Bible, He's the God of the universe. He made it, and he can do whatever he wants. And I love that about God. It's awesome. I love the fact that he shows up to the astrologers over there instead of just to the, to the Hebrew leaders in Jerusalem. And he communicates through a star, even though he tells us not to look to the stars, you know? But that's where they were at, so he spoke to them there. It's incredible. God's awesome, right? He's awesome. I love it, you know? And, uh, you know, like, the picture of this is you realize that, like, December 25th was a global holiday called winter solstice, you know this, before it was Christmas. And then it was like Rome became this Christian nation and all of this. And they decided, well, winter solstice was all about, there was this, you know, the light doesn't quite get extinguished. We got to the shortest day. And then all of a sudden the light comes back and it expands, you know, and the days get longer again. And the pagan, the Druids in Ireland, and they celebrated the Yule up in uh, Sweden and all up in there and over in Rome and in Egypt. There's all these celebrations the winter solstice where it was like the, the, the uh, unconquerable sun. They would worship the power of the sun and the light. And our candlelight services and all this stuff were in existence long before Christmas was celebrated because they would celebrate the light. But then Christ comes along and all of a sudden a Christian nation looks and says, there is an unconquerable light. You're right. You just thought it was the sun, but it's the son of God. So why don't we do Christmas and put it on the 25th? Because that's actually pretty legit. Let's just take whatever you're doing and say there was, a, it was, there was kind of a picture in there of something, right? That was like light breaking forth in darkness, but you didn't understand what it actually was. It was Jesus. And so Christmas gets put right on top of this. And some people freak out when they find out that Christmas is on top of a, of a pagan holiday. And I'm like, no, that's God redeeming it. Just like he spoke to a bunch of magi who were stargazers. And somehow he led them to the word of God and showed them the truth. Isn't that awesome? It's incredible. I love that about God. So anyway, he's always redeeming and he finds us where we're at. And, and he brings us into the truth. And you got to look at these guys and say, when you're looking around and saying, who's the God follower? The first person you were thinking wasn't the Iranian stargazer, the Persian stargazer. That's not who you were thinking as the follower of Christ, you know? But in this story, God takes all of our preconceived notions and he blows them up. He just blows them up because he steps onto the scene and what he's revealing is the heart. He's revealing the heart of who's the God follower or not. You can't look at these guys' profession. You can't look at their source of information. The only way you know is by watching their life and watching their pursuit. I am so impressed with these guys. Honestly, I am incredibly impressed with these wealthy, wise men who leave their home and their comforts and their family to travel across countries, to travel across desert in order to make it all the way to this despised place, you know? And then they get here to Bethlehem, and when they finally get him, it's not like somebody climbing the mountain to talk to the guru in order to get wisdom for their life. That's not what it's like. They travel all this way to do what at the end of it? To get on their knees and worship him and to give him of their treasure. They didn't come seeking for something for themselves. They understood they were made to worship and their life would be fulfilled if instead of seeking for something from this king, they came all this way to give something to him because he deserves it. That's incredible. That's the picture of worship. 
doing whatever it takes to find God to give him what he deserves. Because after all, he's God, not me. So why would I treat my life like it's of all importance and I should be worrying about my life? I should be worrying about him because he's the one in charge and I should be working to, to bless him and to worship him and my life should be about him. What's amazing and ironic all at the same time and terrible and horrific is the fact that there were people who had the knowledge. What's amazing, these guys, they dig all the way over to Jerusalem and when they get to Jerusalem, Herod, of course, completely flips out because they said, where's the king of the Jews that was born? And, you know, this guy's a total paranoid psycho. Like, that's what he is. This is, is no joke. He killed his wife. He killed his kids. He killed all of them because they were a threat to his throne and he was scared of them. This guy is messed up in the head. And it said that all of Jerusalem was worried with him. You know why? Because they're like, uh-oh, Herod just heard this and we're like, he's paranoid, so he's going to freak out and do something really dumb you know? And so they're scared too. But then he calls the chief priests and the leaders in. And and you know what he asks them? What does he ask them? Anybody remember? What does he ask these guys? Yeah, where what baby's going to be born? Somebody say it loud enough so I can hear. The Messiah. The Messiah. This is King Herod who's saying, In this book, it says there will be a Messiah and I want to know where he's born so I can go and worship him, by which he means kill him. And like the king of the day believed enough in this text to know there was a Messiah coming and that this book could even tell him where it was. That's unreal. So then he gets them together and these Hebrew leaders, these Jewish leaders, they point him right to Micah 5. And they tell him. This is the quote right here in in Matthew chapter 2. You heard it. It says, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's from Micah 5. Okay, that's that's a reference back to Micah 5. And so these guys had in their possession the truth about the Messiah. And now the general... Uh, wisdom of the day led these magi to come and say this great king was born and he was born over here in Bethlehem. They have the information. He was born in Judah. They lead them to Bethlehem. Now, what do these Jewish religious leaders do with the information? What do they personally do? Absolutely nothing. Can, Can we just like stop and think about that for a second? Like they are the keepers of this word. There is no one else on the planet who is more the keeper of this word than the chief priests in Jerusalem around the temple. They were the keeper of the scrolls. They were the scholars of the day. And when asked where the Messiah was going to be born, they could turn right to the passage and say, in Bethlehem. And what did they do when the Messiah shows up in Bethlehem, which is right next door, just down the street from them? What do they do? absolutely nothing. And some astrologers from Iran give up everything in order to come over here and bow down and worship. Now tell me, God is revealing hearts, is he not? He is showing where people's hearts are. And what's ironic and what's terrible and what's sad is the keepers of this book are not always the ones who have their hearts turned to God. What's sad is what we've seen over century and century and century of time after time of people who have the knowledge of the scriptures but not a heart for God. And so often spiritual maturity has been misdefined. It's been defined as those who understand this book. Well, I will tell you, I know many people who know this book and don't know the Messiah who it speaks of. And I've known many people who know the Messiah it speaks of without knowing this book. Like the Magi. And when heaven meets earth and God shows up, all of a sudden our our preconceived notions are blown away and God reveals the hearts of men and those who will follow him, they are snapped into line. They might have been studying astrology, but now they're studying the scripture. And I guarantee you that these guys got a copy of the scrolls of Scripture after they worshipped the Messiah. I can guarantee you that. And they were hearing dreams from Yahweh after this, being guided and directed. They step into relationship with God. And they had been Persian 
Persian stargazers and are now full-on worshipers of God. And then those chief priests, the protectors of the truth, who had all the information, they go and crucify the Messiah. You know? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I have to be absolutely challenged by this passage personally. And I have to ask myself where I fall along the line here. You know? Where, where am I in this thing? What do I personify? I know that I have this information. But that doesn't, that doesn't say anything about where I actually am just because I have this information. You know? I have to look at my life the way I look at the, the Magi and the way I look at these religious leaders. And I have to say, like, what is happening with me? What is the pursuit of my life? What is my focus? Where am I at? What do I care about? Where is my heart? When I look over, am I seeking with everything inside of me to find God so I can submit to him, so I can give him my heart? You know, this is what it says in Hebrews 13. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others for such is the sacrifice of that praises God and in the same way we read in Romans 12 1 present your bodies as living sacrifices to God holy this is your holy and acceptable act of worship do not conform anymore to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind you see this is the question Am I the worshiper? I don't have to bring gold and frankincense and myrrh to God. I got to bring me to God. And I got to stop and ask myself in this moment, which one of these do I fall into? Because remember, remember, there's only two ways. There's these gates. And I'm on one of these paths. Like it or not, I am on one of these paths. I have entered one of these gates. And that's all there is to it. I can't live on both. I can't. And if I think I can, I'm deceiving myself. I'm deceiving myself. There's one other thing that I got to say. I just have to stop and say this in the middle of it. And that's that even though the Magi had the heart for God, this is a side note, even though the Magi had the heart for God, they would have only gotten to Jerusalem had it not been for the word. Right? The star led them to Jerusalem, but they needed the word of God in order to start going to Bethlehem. And no matter how much our hearts are turned toward God, we still actually need the truth, the word. See, here's the thing. You, true worshipers, Jesus tells us when he's talking to the Samaritan woman, he says, he says, true worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth. Which means I actually have to have a heart that's turned toward God, but I also have to have the right knowledge. And we have, a, we have a problem in our world right now, a multifaceted problem. And the problem is we don't worship God with spirit or truth. Or we separate ourselves and we have a group of people over here who worship him in spirit and we have a group over here who worship him in truth. Over here, those who worship him in truth, we call legalists and fundamentalists. And over here, the people who worship him only in spirit, we call crazy Pentecostals who don't know what's going on or whatever, you know, who's just out there. And somewhere in the middle, we're, what we're actually looking for is where we understand that heart and spirit is what it takes to turn toward God. And without it, it's dry and it's dead and it's nothing. It's like these religious leaders who are not, there's nothing going on. If all I have is truth, then it's just legalism and, and there's nothing about it that actually breathes life. And over and, and, and in the same way, that there's, it's just the opposite on the other end of the stick. If I'm the Magi and I, I have a heart for God, but I don't have the right truth, then I might be worshiping who knows what. I'm never led to Jesus at the end of the day. I never make it to Bethlehem. I actually need the word. And I, and I want to say something about this because this is on us. If I, if I ask right now, we have economic crisis all over our nation, you know, just terrible economic crisis. And if I ask you what's the source of our economic crisis, we might have all sorts of, pro, all sorts of issues. It might be hedge funds. It might be Freddie Mac. It might be President Obama. It might have been President Bush. You might say it's those terrible CEOs, you know, whatever it is. It might be Enron. It might be the terrorists. Who, we could say whatever it is. But none of that's actually the reality, is it? None of that's the reality of what the problem is. We know what the real problem is with the economy in America, right? It's greed. 
It's that we're materialists who spend more than we have, and we empower the problems. All that we live in a democratic republic, man, those people are put in office by us, you know? And if there's a problem, it's because we put them there, and we put them there because we have a heart motivation. If there's people who are setting up funds that deceive us and can play all sorts of tricks and mess with the stock market, well, guess why? Because we're greedy, and we want things that we can't just earn the good old-fashioned way, and we want things we care more about what we can get than what we can give because we are greedy materialists in America. And if we're going to look at anyone to fix our economic problems, it better not be Washington or Wall Street. It better be my home where I teach my kids how to steward the resources that God gives them. Okay, and in the exact same way, when the word of God goes missing in our society, it is not because the church hasn't done a good job in Sunday school. It's not because prayer isn't in the public schools anymore. It's because at home, we haven't learned to get the word of God into the hearts and into the heads of our kids enough. That's why. You see, this is what it says in Deuteronomy. Listen to this in Deuteronomy 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. They're to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols around your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. How important is the word of God? He says, bathe your house, bathe your conversation, make everything about the word of God. Listen to me, man. I could have so much fun with my kids when we cut loose and do all sorts of good things, and we do that. But you know what? There's times when I have to forgo what I want to do with my kids because I need to teach them about the word of God at home. And right now, I can bring my kids up here, and they'll start rattling off Bible verses to you. And I'm not saying that to be like, oh, we're a super spiritual home or something. I'm saying it because this is our responsibility at home is to teach our kids the scriptures. And I don't depend on this church to do it. And I don't depend on the school to do it. I don't depend on journey kids on Tuesday night to do it. All those things can help and they're great. But you know where my kids are going to learn the truth? At home when I open up the scriptures and I teach them the word and that's on me. The scriptures make it clear that's my responsibility. And so if the word of God is going to be preserved in our society, it's not going to be through church. It's not going to be through school. It's going to be through homes and parents who care to invest the word of God into their kids. And listen, many of you were not raised in an environment where that word was placed into your heads. So you're like, how in the world am I going to pass it on to my kids? I don't know it myself, which means all the more why you got to get plugged in and why you got to be reading the word, why you got to be coming to Sunday school, why you got to be going to journey groups, why you got to get plugged in and learn the word of God, because there's nothing more important than worshiping our God, both with our heart and with our minds when it comes to the truth. And we need it desperately. And if we drop the ball, we're not just dropping the ball for us. We're dropping it for our kids and for their kids because the wise men needed the scripture to get to Bethlehem even though their hearts were in the right place. And if our kids or grandkids want to know God, but they don't have the right information in their head, they are going to be misled, I promise you. And we see it all over the place right now where there is just junk, junk spirituality, junk Christianity, garbage Christianity, because we don't treasure the word of God the way we should. And we've lost it. Now listen, for the, for the wise men, providentially, they did encounter the word of God. And it was spectacular when they did. And this is why. He leads them to Micah 5. And you know what Micah 5 is all about? It's about this king who will rise up in Judah. And Israel will again regain its place among the nations. And all the nations will come to worship this king. And that's what Micah is all about. And here are the guys coming from the other nations and are led to Jesus by the prophecy about the fact that there will be guys from other nations who will come to worship him. In their asking, they are are fulfilling this prophecy. It's unreal. This being read to them is the very fulfillment of it. It's like when Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he talks about the one who was anointed to preach to the poor and to release the bondage and he says, this is being fulfilled as it's spoken. That's exactly what's happening here. Micah 5 is being spoken to them by faithless religious leaders potentially, and in the process, we watch the fulfillment of this passage. That's another one of those winding clocks that God set up, and you just step back and you're like, oh God, like that's insanity. You are incredible. Like, unbelievable how you do that. Over and over again you do that. You're incredible. You're incredible. 
It should blow our minds. Honestly, it should blow our minds, the fact that it's the Magi who God tries to reveal himself to, who God decides to reveal himself to. I mean, if we're writing the script, there is no way that any of us are writing, you know, Iranian wise men into this story. That's not how we would write the script. And God just, he blows our minds. Again, and right from the beginning, you see Jesus, just by being born, is already reaching across the Jew-Gentile divide and reaching out to the true worshiper who's a Gentile and reaching him right from the beginning. And it should shock us. And here's another thing, is that in our churches, if we're not being surprised by who comes, if we're not experiencing surprises in our life, then God's not present. Because when God's present, surprising things happen all the time. And if we're not seeing surprising things happen, then we're not seeing God at work. Because God isn't a person who just, everything just like, it's like God is so far beyond us that when we come into contact with him, which just blows our mind. And every time you want to try to set up a framework and a box to fit that makes sense of it, oh, you just got to step back and say, forget it, man. God's going to blow that thing to shreds. You know, I come and I follow God and I seek God according to his scripture. But don't, don't ever think that I got a corner, any of us have a corner of the market on knowing exactly how God's going to work. We have no idea. And I love that. Another thing that I just absolutely love about God. All right, well, listen, there's one more person in this story here, and that's Herod. And Herod um, like we said, is a nut job, and he's paranoid. And, and I really mean that. I mean, I, I probably shouldn't even use that term. He's just, this guy's certifiable. He's a, he's a real problem, and he's probably got demonic influences in his life and all of this stuff. It is a sad, sad case of a paranoid leader who doesn't give one hoot about any of his followers. All he wants to do is protect his own stuff, you know? And that's what's going on with this leader. And he's the extreme example of it. You know, you see the, the religious leaders who they don't really go after the Messiah when they have the chance. But Herod, man, he calls this secret meeting. And you know what happens when politicians call those secret meetings, you know? And it's, it's like, it's a scary moment. And it's not like this is sensitive information. I've got to keep it quiet in order it's confidential. I don't want it to matter. It's nothing like that. This guy's scheming. He wants a lack of accountability. He wants the ability to control. We see what he tries to do in the next passage. We'll get to that next Sunday on Christmas. And, you know, this guy, it's bad news. And what you see in this moment is you've got a king of Jews, you've got religious leaders, and then you watch the wise men. who ha- They're the ones with all the deep information, right? They don't try to write a book and get a bestseller from it. They don't try to go and like gain a crowd and a following because of their privileged information. They just throw it out there. They're not having secret meetings. They're like, everyone needs to know about this king. Here, here's the information. And you see, one is interested in promoting their own life and using the information in order to get done what they want to get done with their life. The other person is interested in just giving the information that's necessary in order to find God and worship him. No privileged information in this situation. See, this is what happens. You've got to hear this about Jesus. I don't know if you know this about Jesus. Uh, you may. Every time that God shows up in a situation, whenever Jesus is present, he, there's two things that happen. One is he causes division. Do you know that? He causes division. He causes division between that broad path and the narrow path. There's the believers and the unbelievers. And he causes division. And the reason, again, is because when God walks into the room, everyone reacts. And they go to this camp over here that's going to worship God, or they go to this camp who's going to kind of try to protect their own thing and stay a little clear of God. And what that does is like the parting of the Red Sea, man. Whom Everybody goes into their camp, you know? And he causes division. Then he does this other thing. He causes alignment. And the alignment comes from those who are on the narrow path. Snap! They all get right into line behind Jesus and they get on their knees, you know? And so there's great alignment. And you know how I said in my car, hey, it's coming back around. In, the, in my car, the, the, uh, the suspension, there's two different suspensions and it causes the thing to shake and it doesn't work. Well, what God does is he takes the messed up suspension, he takes the people who are making wrong choices who aren't worshiping and it gets pushed out. And now all of a sudden, things are in line. It's only worshipers and it begins to run smoothly again. You see, and that's what happens when Jesus shows up on the scene. Now listen, this is really important. You gotta stop right in this moment and just ask yourself, in reality, you gotta ask yourself, who is this that when they show up as just a baby, all of a sudden the wisest men in the world travel to come find this baby and worship it? Who is this who just by being born makes a king go nuts and kill a whole bunch of kids and do Who is this? Who is this child? The Magi called him the king of the Jews. 
And when you think about that term, I mean, that term, it, obviously, it made, it made Herod go berserk. But you remember when that term's used again, right? King of the Jews. It's used again one more time in this book. And it's when Jesus is hanging on a cross. King of the Jews. I mean, they had no idea what they were saying. They don't, they don't know what they're saying. The, the wise men don't know what they're saying. They call him King of the Jews. Man, he's born King of the Jews. They think he's the fulfillment of the prophetic star. That's what they think he is. That there's the star and he's the fulfillment of it. He's not the fulfillment of it. He's the maker of it. He's the maker of those stars. Herod thinks that he's potentially the fulfillment of this text about the Messiah that would raise up a king who would be a threat to him. He's not just the fulfillment of that text. He's the author of the text. He's the author of the text and he's the creator of the stars. You see, who Jesus is, is he's the opposite. He's so much greater. Like, here's Herod, and he tries to kill babies and slaughter babies in order to protect his own throne. And what Jesus does is come off of his throne and come down as a lamb, and he slaughtered himself so that we can rise up and become who we're supposed to be. These Persian rulers, they come from Iran and travel across the desert to come to Bethlehem in order to worship him. He goes from celestial heaven and comes down to our ghetto, sin-filled earth in order to wash our feet and cleanse us and bring us back to him. Can you imagine this God who we serve? Can you comprehend this God who we serve? He's incredible. He winds the clock and he does the unimaginable and he puts himself through heaven, through hell, through earth, and through us and on a cross in order to redeem us. This is the son of heaven manifested here on earth. And when he comes, all of time cracks. The stars align and we change from BC to AD and the hearts of people are revealed and the kings get angry and the wise men worship and the shepherds come running and the religious leaders run for the hills. Something happens when he shows up because he's God Almighty. And believe me, that his scriptures are very clear about the fact that when he came that time and all of that happened, it doesn't quite compare to what's going to happen when he comes again. And when he comes again, time as we know it will change. And when he comes again, the hearts of men and women will be revealed and we will know what gate we have walked through. And when he comes, he will bring division and he will bring alignment. And this time when he comes, he will not come just to redeem. He will come to conquer. He will come to judge and he will come to rule. And when he does this time, it won't just be the wise ones among us who will bow our knees, but every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do it willingly. Some will do it unwillingly. Some will be like the Magi. Some will be like Herod, but every knee will bow. And on that day, we'll know why we're bowing, either because we cared and we desired to submit or because because we didn't care, but we can't stand in the presence of this God. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait to find out on that day why I'm kneeling. I want to get on my knees today, and I want to be like a magi, and I want to run hard after God. And I want to spend my life not trying to figure out how to use my life appropriately. I want to spend my life trying to figure out who this God is and what he wants of my life and how I can best support him because he's the best thing I know of in this world. And he's my maker and he's my God. And if I want to know anything about me, I better first figure out a whole lot about him. So I come to him like the Magi, you know? And with all my pride, with all my arrogance, with all my deception, with all my lust, with all my materialism, with all my garbage, with all my sin that separates, and I don't act like I want to protect my stuff, and I, don't, I just want to come to the foot of a manger and begin to worship this God who's in control, and I want it to lead me to the foot of a cross where he washes me and cleanses me of my sin, and I want to go to the door of this empty tomb, and I want to rise with him, and I want him to take my life because my life is worth absolutely nothing if I haven't discovered this Jesus, this baby who rocked our planet and is going to rock it again. Let's pray.